Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. A quick content warning, the following episode contains a reference to a very specific gynecological procedure, several suicide attempts, and alcohol. Lots of alcohol, the latter of which you probably knew about coming into this episode. Nothing really to trouble the average adult listener. However, if you're listening with children, you might want to put on your headphones. And now, on with the show. And here's your 30-second summary. What fresh hell is this? The end. Let's talk about Dorothy Parker. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1893, Queen Isabella is the first woman to be pictured on a U.S. postage stamp. Thomas Edison not only completes his first movie studio, but the first movie is made. It's a close-up of a sneeze. The Bisco Foods invents cream of wheat. Lizzie Borden was acquitted of the axe murders of her father and stepmother. New Zealand becomes the first country to grant women the vote. Our favorite World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition in Chicago, opens in May and closes in October. Rutherford B. Hayes, Lucy Stone, and Peter Tchaikovsky die. Edsel Ford, Lillian Gish, and Hattie McDaniel were born. And on August 22, 1893, Dorothy Rothschild Parker was also born. Dorothy Rothschild was born at her family's summer house in West End, New Jersey. Her parents, Henry and Eliza, had expected a later and planned New York City birth, but instead, Henry was back at work in the city, and Dorothy had been born during a storm at the shore. Who's Jacob? Who do I have her father as Jacob? Who's Jacob? Oh, his name was Jacob. He, it was Jacob Henry, and then over over time, he changed his name several times. Like okay. he used his whole name, okay. except in different um, okay different versions. Yeah. Well, because Jacob sounds very Jewish, right? And exactly. And that's why he did it. Distance. That's exactly. Okay. Why he did fair it. enough. Okay. Because I'm just like, wait a minute, who's that guy? Eliza and Henry had lived next door to each other as teenagers. They fell in love. But Henry's family was Jewish, and Eliza's Scottish family weren't, it wasn't like the match that they had and planned for her. So what did they do? They moved. But Eliza would have none of that. She had her heart set on Henry. That was her man. So she said if she couldn't marry him, she wasn't going to marry at all. She took a job teaching at a public school and lived with her parents until she was almost 30, when they finally were able to be married in 1880. I think that's a nice love story. And then, of course, she gets boring and he gets mean. <laughs> but yeah. they started off really good. Yeah, that was a romantic story, I suppose. Now, you might connect the name Rothschild and the word Manhattan and think, oh, ho, multi-jillionaires. There's a very famous banking Rothschild family that at one point owned mm, all the known world, functionally. <laughs> it was the largest private fortune on the globe at one point. Um, unfortunately, these are not those Rothschilds. However, one uncle kind of parlayed the, just, he didn't correct people. I don't think he was a big liar head about it. Mm-mm. But the name really conveyed, I am full of money and breeding. And he just let that stand. And he married very well. And by the time she found out, it was too late. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, you know, a little Googling might yeah, have helped. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Papa was not even remotely connected to that family, but had definitely made quite a bit of money in the clothing trade. And little Dorothy's financial needs were never going to be a problem. Her financial needs. Um, Dorothy was the fourth and last child. She was the second daughter, and her siblings, Harold and Bertrand and Helen, were quite older than her. 
they were still kids technically, but the gap, the age gap between them was huge. So basically she was raised functionally as mostly an only child. Everything started out so well. Papa was cross. Fair enough. But Mama was a good counterbalance. She was nice and kind. It's kind of a boring life. Never underestimate the value of a boring childhood. <laughs> I'm here to tell you, after so many of these shows... I know. That's a good point. If there's too much, like in the first seven, eight pages of our notes about the childhood, we know, oh, oh my. <laughs> so a boring childhood is actually kind of a gift. If you're giving your children a boring childhood, yay. Wonderful. Good for you. But when she was five, her mother became sick and suddenly died. Some said that um, she had artery disease, and other sources say that she died of E. coli. But either way, she's dead. Well, so she's the child's only real ally in the house, and Papa had always been that grumpy dude. He's on the edge all the time, and without the calming influence of his gentle wife, he let his discipline flag fly, and he really became what Dorothy later referred to as a, quote, monster. Though she skirted around him, really, for the rest of her life, you know, little things would leak out, like if she was late to dinner or talked at dinner, and this children should be seen and not heard age, he would hit her wrists with the back of a serving spoon. I mean, these are sterling silver spoons. <laughs> the back of your wrist hurts like the dickens. Have you ever swung your arm and accidentally hit a corner of a table oh, or something? Yeah. Someone's like an elbow is that bad. Yeah. There is some nerve in there, this like funny bone, that is not funny. <laughs> and it hurts. Mm-hmm. But he used to beat her on the wrist with it. And she was terrified of him her whole life. And this winner, as winners will do, chose this harpy as his second wife. His second wife, Eleanor, sounded a lot like Eliza on paper. She was older. She was an unmarried school teacher, but she wasn't exactly like Eliza. She was an extremely religious woman who set out to save Dorothy's soul by hook or by crook, by physical punishment or psychological, made her no never mind. This woman, Dorothy, never called mother, never called stepmother. She, even her name, none of it. She referred to her as the housekeeper, always. Well, Eleanor, this new stepmother, the housekeeper, um, had married a Jewish man, though a completely non-practicing one, as far as I can tell, and maybe it was just too dangerous to try to fix him, so Eleanor focused on fixing the two daughters, who were half Scottish anyway. What would that be? Presbyterian? Anyway, <laughs> the girls were sent to Protestant. Yeah. Know. So the girls were sent to Catholic school, where the Jewish name got them no friends among the students or among the good sisters, I might say, of the order. Well, Dorothy didn't help because she was getting quite um, mouthy, I guess we would call it, in, in this day and age. She had some problems with the Catholic doctrine. She thought it was odd. She called the Immaculate Conception spontaneous combustion. So you can see where the nuns would get a little upset with that. I might cut this out. Okay. I'm just putting in this anecdote. Okay. My son does not have a lot of background in religious instruction. <laughs> He is going currently to a summer camp that has a little more Jesus in it this week than normal. Right. And so he shows up at the table where they're painting, and they say, today we're painting Moses. And just like molasses, like breakfast food. So he starts painting bacon as one well. <laughs> and so they're like, no, Moses. You know, Moses. The And then he's completely blank, painting his bacon. And they explained to him that he is the guy with a stick that hit the ocean and split it into two. And he goes, is that one of those guys in the Harry Potter books that didn't make it into the movies? Because there's a lot of those characters, and honestly, I haven't read all the books yet. <laughs> this is the level where Dorothy Parker is. And anyway, so there's the anecdote, which I may end up taking out. Yeah. 
That's okay. I think it's funny. So, yes, my poor son. I might want to go back and cover some highlights of things you might encounter. Anyway. anyway. <laughs> so, little Dottie was kind of caught between a rock and a hard place here. She had a school that was, you know, honestly, the teachers were mean to her. Um, the students were not that nice to her. And then she'd go back to a house where no one loved her, and the best you could hope for was to be ignored. She was forbidden to speak to the servants, so she's... Little kids in upper-class households often are very best friends with the servants. Right, right. So she started talking to herself. Kind of this polite, scared, poolless little quiet girl on the outside with such good manners because hell rained down without them. And then, as she said, the devil got a hold of her tongue and her real feelings would kind of like leak out, like the whole immaculate conception thing. Right. And that's a pattern that goes on her whole life. Outside refined, inside turbulent. Eleanor would say, did you love Jesus today? So I don't know what she would have said. I mean, I can only imagine. She probably would have said, yes, I did. And then I can see her pacing back and forth, (laughs) but only in private. Later, although we already have the makings of her adult personality here, she would tell reviewers, good God, if I ever told you about my childhood, you wouldn't sit in the same room with me. It's sad. Sad. I'm just like, I hate to think about this little tiny girl knocking around completely alone and like everyone is just mean. I, well, I think that there's one key thing that kind of was her, um, it kind of was a spark on her fire for that type of part of her personality. She wished that Eleanor would die. And one day, Eleanor did die. So now, poor Dorothy has two deaths on her hands as far as she's concerned, because she's just a little girl. She killed her mother, and then she killed her stepmother. So that's going to be, even though she didn't like her, that's still going to be simmering in her for the rest of her life, I think. <laughs> Although that's some power. Henry is, he just kind of gives up at this point. The two girls still in school were sent to a school called Miss Dana's School, a super exclusive boarding school. It's so well regarded that, so you go to Miss Dana's School and you get your certificate and you want to go to Vassar? They're like, well, let us submit you to an examination. You hold the piece of paper out, and it's like a magic talisman. They simply curtsy and allow you in. There is no further, nothing required. Oh, I didn't realize. You're in. So that's the kind of level of education we're getting here. So reading, writing, history, chemistry, astronomy, oration, very popular, philosophy, Latin, Greek, Latin and Greek in a girl's school, you guys. Supreme. Art history, logic, psychology, there's only usually about 15 students in a class. And it was kind of like either you're sitting around a round table, oh, another thing, oh. or <laughs> you're perched on sofas all over the room. I mean, it's it's not, what a difference from before in Catholic school. Oh, yeah. And no one's slapping your wrist. And at boarding school, we're away from the house of dark and gloom and doom, and her classmates were very worldly people and well-traveled and rich. One of them came to school in her own car in 1908. Number one, rich enough to let your teenage daughter have her own car. Number two, brave enough to set her free to do it. Love it. Love. Yeah. Way different. So Dorothy flourished here. This really does parallel the Harry Potter story. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying. Who is Dorothy in the Harry Potter story? Abused child. Harry okay. Potter. Harry. Goes to boarding school to learn amazing things, gain independence, discover herself, or, you know, himself, in the case of Harry Potter. Right. 
It's the blossoming. When you get to Hogwarts. Okay. So all the classes were held so informally, like I said, and there were discussion clubs, kind of mandatory, but you wanted to go there, where the young ladies discussed real topics like socialism, workers' rights, racial equality, votes for women, child labor, capitalism. This isn't flower arranging class. Right. And you... this goes, another theme that goes through her whole life. I had such a hard time putting her in that era because her life is really very modern. You know, this type of classroom environment is more common now. It's just, it's just mind, almost mind fucking to me that she didn't live now. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that she did all this then. Well, I want to go to this school. I know, right? I'm telling you right now. <laughs> but what a rare, rare thing. That might have, even then that yeah. was rare. So I'm glad she had it because it's so different than what she had before. So this teeny tiny five foot tall person with, <laughs> you're speaking as another person who's Five foot tall, and I'm putting that in quotes. I I, I read that she only hit four eleven. If you stand up properly <laughs> and wear the good shoes, and wear the good shoes. Yeah, I don't have good posture right now because I'm trying to get closer to the uh, microphone. I, I can tell you, my back's never touched the back of a chair <laughs> because yes, posture. Yes. Okay, so this <laughs> she has these huge dark eyes and what was called quote an Italian bosom. The things people think to immortalize. <laughs> I swear, is that, are we saying well provided for in the cleavage department? Is that what I'm reading? I, how bizarre. And now I have to look at her pictures. I don't know. I never looked at her boobs. King, Grandpa King, Louis. Oh, oh yeah. That's the first thing I look at. <laughs> so, super cute. Anyway, you know, feeding her mind all day. And then, I love the picture of this at the school. No sweets allowed, young ladies. And no smoking allowed, young ladies. But they had bamboozled the pastry chef into bootlegging them up you know, croissants and all these things. And here they are, like, leaning out the windows, blowing smoke into the air, um, eating their bootleg pastries, <laughs> and watching the men, the young men at the private tennis club right behind come through the forest. Hey, woo! You know, <laughs> love it. Um, also, it sounds like a movie. Uh, so many parts of her life sound like uh, there could be, like, a whole movie. Like, a whole movie of her, yeah. Miss Dana's years. I know. You know, especially with her sister. Her sister, who is... She's very pretty. Helen was very pretty, and she was very popular, and she was very sociable, and she said a lot of the right things. Um, she did a lot of things that would traditionally get a woman a good husband, whereas Dorothy was more the arty kid. You know, she was very artistic and nappy. I mean, she was even snappy back then with her commentary. Well, and also, she would work out these elaborate schemes to get to the movies to see Perils of Pauline. You know that thing where people get tied to the railroad track? Yeah. The little <laughs> Yeah, meme yeah. that's always everywhere. Um, that's, you know, mm-hmm. Carol's of Pauline. I'm going to go to town to buy some thread to mend my whatever. And mm, do, 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 do. <laughs> we get through the back door and, you know, go watch the totally forbidden. Could have gotten you kicked out of school. So could the smoking. But you know what? Did that stop anybody? No, it yeah. did not. Um, so here's your life. And it sounds very much like a very upscale person these days. She has her private boarding school throughout the year. And then in the summer, she goes out to Long Island to the beach, to the shore. She's with Helen, who is at this point courting her future husband, and his family has a house out there. So Helen and Dorothy stay at a hotel in town for two months and have a blast. They have a beautiful summer experience, swimming and the tennis and the games and the parties. And for Dorothy, the sitting on the porch reading. I mean, she's a very voracious reader, even at this age. So (laughs) this is where we have a little discrepancy because... 
she did not actually graduate and re- receive her certificate. That part, all of our sources agree upon. Right. But there is a really big degree of disagreement here. So either at 14 she leaves, or at 18 in 1911 she leaves Miss Danis. Either way, she leaves without graduating, without she getting without her little ticket to Vassar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and. You know, to move on to the real world, or really the twilight world of young ladies in her social class biding time at Papa's house until, you know, her prince comes to save her. We've all heard, you know, someday my prince will come. <laughs> I don't think her time at, at this point, I mean, Henry is, um, she's kind of taking care of him, but Henry had always written verses, you know, little poems. And Dorothy, that was kind of something that they had in common, that she would write them as well. I like a lot of her letters when she was away, she'd send him little poems and poems to her dogs. It wasn't miserable. I can't see how you could bear to go back to that house. After her years of happiness, it would be like if Harry Potter had to go back to the Dursley's house and live. I just, I know, I know you make of it what you can. Yeah, yeah. And she wasn't in prison, and honestly, and I think it was a lot better than her childhood, because she was older, and she kind of was taking care of her dad, so she had a little bit of control. Well, there's a little tiny mystery over the next few years or so. So what we do know is that Papa Rothschild died, and Dorothy moved to a boarding house at 103rd and Broadway. Now, I tried to Google Street View this, yeah. and I will tell you there's a Starbucks there, but that doesn't mean anything. It's in the bottom floor of a building. It could be any one of those buildings as you circle around the Street View. I couldn't exactly see which one it was. She said she went to live at the boarding house because her father had left the family with no money. Seems highly unlikely to me. More plausible is, say, quote, making, moving to a boarding house, which she wanted to do, a societally acceptable thing to do. Because by claiming to be an impoverished gentlewoman, you know, you can take up one of those little acceptable jobs for these sort of women, in her case, playing the piano of an evening for a dancing school. What could be more refined? But I just don't see how Papa could have left them with no money. I... didn't. I don't believe he did. Well, no, she always said he did, and that's right. why she moved. Correct. But where I, was she going to live? She going to live in the house by herself? No, she couldn't. Was she going to live with her brothers or her sister? She couldn't she have. Couldn't. No, and she's older. She's like 20. Well, I'm just saying, society says that's yeah. what she ought to have right, done. Right, right, right. But I don't think she wants to do what society says. No, thus. So, I get it. So $8 a week uh, for a room and two meals a day, that's almost $200 in today's money a week. Um, but what price freedom? You know, hardly any young lady of her time and place had the independence of this woman right now. Mm-mm. Remember that she's, it's not a contemporary woman. This, no. She doesn't even have the vote yet. Mm-mm. So for about four-ish years, that's what we have of Dorothy. You know, she's writing poems and short stories during the day, submitting them, hearing nothing, right. um, playing piano for the students at night, and she had great friends in the boarding house. Men friends, so scandalous, you know, but they would talk their heads off about this and that all day, philosophy and writing and life, and it sounds like every single person on earth's mac and cheesy college days to me. That- and that's exactly what it sounded like to me, Joy. Uh-huh. It sounded like college, except without having to go to classes, we- had to go to work. I know. Well, and you know, what is, I guess they didn't have like mac and cheese. What would it have been? Like pancakes and potatoes? <laughs> I know it had to be starchy, cheap food. Yeah, I don't know. Bread of some sort, I would assume. Well, Dorothy is in no way unhappy, you know, here. But at last, one of her poems hit with a publisher with the epic name of Frank Crowninshield. Frank Crowninshield. Perhaps he is the prince she was waiting for. He does have a crown. Oh, ah! 
And he does have a shield. Oh, you're awesome. Well, and you know, he paid her $12. Which? That's about 300 Yep. Yeah. For a poem called Any Porch. And let me just read four lines from it. Okay. This is all. I'm not going to do the whole thing. And it's it's in Vanity Fair. It's not like it's, you know. In, in a local, sh- yeah. lovey paper. Yeah. I don't want to vote for myself, but women with property, dear, I think the poor girl's on the shelf. She's talking about her career. <laughs> I just think she's so avant-garde. Well, she was slamming all those women that she spent her summers with. Mm-hmm. I mean, even when Henry was still alive, she would they would spend their summers at the Connecticut shore in hotels. And these are the women that she was surrounded with. And those were her role models? No. Be careful if there's a writer in the room, because what you say will be used against you. Yes, it will. <laughs> well, he liked her so much, Mr. Crowded Shield, that he hired her for $10 a week at Vogue magazine. Vogue magazine. I mean, moving on $10 a up. week. This is the literary life. Well, she wrote captions for photos and taglines for ads, which was great practice for her fame later as someone who could get a point across in a very few words. Yeah, she started off pretty strong, and she went for deep quotes that played on Shakespeare, like, brevity is the soul of wit for an underwear. Brevity is the soul of lingerie. <laughs> uh, yes, it is indeed. And she she got into trouble for writing. There was a sexy nightgown, and she wrote, There once was a girl who had a little curl right in the middle of her forehead, and when she was good, she was very, very good. But when she was bad, she wore this divine nightdress. It almost made it to press before it got stopped, because... No one was really proofing her stuff because she always wrote such great things and it almost made it. So she starts off really strong and taking things seriously, but she quickly goes, oh, I can have some fun with this. <laughs> well, she was at Vogue for a year and reasonably happy to be in the thick of fashionable people. But when she was asked to move over to Vanity Fair magazine, basically... Mr. Cronenshield was telling her that she was in the in-in crowd. E.E. Cummings wrote for this magazine. Gertrude Stein. Picasso was featured. Now, remember in Titanic? This is just slightly after Titanic, but when Kate Winslet's character was obviously this crazy, brainy, hippie person for having bought a Picasso. Right. How avant-garde that uh-huh. was. Like, everyone's like, oh, I don't even know. Okay, Picasso's in this magazine. <laughs> like that, intellectually elite, avant-garde, highly educated, witty, sarcastic. This magazine was the thing. And it was suited to her more so than where she was, where she had a boss who was very much like in the Devil Wears Prada. She was very Miranda, and the women all had to, even though they weren't paid very well, they had to show up with hats and white gloves and black silk stockings. There was marble tables with big flower arrangements. It was very formal environment and <laughs> Dorothy and her boss didn't act, the editor didn't actually get along so well so the editor was like fine go away go to that little frat house and Dorothy couldn't wait well this is big stuff and Miss Dorothy was a popular kid over at that new office let me tell you so tiny and her clothes were so fashionable I think one more reason that I think she still had some money but she had yeah. that training at Vogue I know when I used right. to work at anthropology mm-hmm. For some reason, I mean, you know, you just get, like, hooked up to whatever your environment is. And I used to dress so fancy when I worked there, even on the weekends. Well, you know, back you just, to Devil Wears Prada, I mean, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. she came in all, and then she got all fancy. So, Well, yeah. um, the thing that people really thought was amazing, and this will go on forever, her little doll face, her little cutesy doll face that all of this crazy wit would leak out of. The contrast is amazing. She kept people guessing. You have to be some kind of intelligent to pull off sarcasm. And she just delighted people. Although later she's like, oh, now, 
I was just a little Jewish girl trying to be cute. She succeeded. And again, again, they have to remind ourselves that she's still four years out from the 19th Amendment. You know, this she's this working woman in an environment with a lot of men, you know, doing her job and writing and proofreading and fact-checking. She was working very hard. She was playing very hard. But it doesn't sound like that pre-19th Amendment era you know, the life, but there's 12% of the population was were, of women was employed. I will almost guarantee you most of that was in domestic service. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. So the the amount of women, like, except maybe I vote, going to an office, mm-hmm. doing whatever it is one does, and coming home again of an evening was got to be, I mean, under yeah. 1%. Right. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because think how many, because, you know, every respectable middle class family had at least a maid. Right. So there you got most of the working women mm-hmm. there. Oh, and then factory workers. You know, and her first accepted poem to Vanity Fair, which was published under a pseudonym because it was so biting, they didn't want it to tie into this woman that they had high hopes for, but it was called Women, a Hate Song. And she directed her strongest ire was sent to the, <laughs> the women who sewed their own clothes and cut newspaper recipes, the, the domestic set. She did not like them very much. Hufflepuffs never get respect, man. Oh, here we go. Yeah. I'm just saying, the domestic cards are not as valued as they ought to be because without them, we would have no food. My daughter is a proud Hufflepuff. <laughs> she really is. She's. Didn't she ask you the other day what house you belong in? I would like every listener that has ever heard this show to send in what house they think I'm in. Okay. I am so clearly one house that, because you know, you all know. <laughs> And clearly Dorothy's there, too. Um, so, out of nowhere, seemingly, comes Edwin Pond Parker II, who, Wall Street broker from an old New England family, super handsome and six feet tall, because men over six feet tall always wear women my height. <laughs> it's true. It's a way to keep the human race from getting too tall. <laughs> Sorry, tall girls. I mean, I know you marry marry tall men too, but for I most of the men that I dated in my life were six foot or higher. I yeah, I don't yeah, understand I don't, it. I don't either. So where where did this guy come from? And even Dorothy did not keep her story straight. She just <laughs> told her friends, "Oh, we grew up together. I met him on vacation in Connecticut. I met him while I was at Miss Dana's school. I mean, he could have been one of the guys hanging out the window at the tennis. I would have been. Yeah, we met through mutual friends in New York. You know." Whatever, Dorothy. Someplace they met. And she never, you know, she never wrote her, her autobiography, so we don't know for sure. And even if she had, we wouldn't have believed it. Yeah. <laughs> so someplace they met, and they got engaged and married in a matter of months. Me too, girl. It was obvious to all of her friends that they were madly in love, although she said, oh, I just needed to change my name. <laughs> and it's a good change. Rothschild? Parker? It is hard to say. Rothschild. child, yes. Susan is relieved that word will no longer appear in this podcast. I know. How many takes to get it out at the beginning? <laughs> well, not so. Not so. Though she always did hate her last name, you know. Uh, so, very in love. Real life intervened, as it tends to do. The U.S. declared war on Germany in March of 1917, and it was considered very, what, shameful to wait to be called up. Um, so, what you were supposed to do, if you were a virile young American man, is to run out and enlist. Did you see Mr. Selfridge? This happened in Britain, too. So, there was a... All the young men that worked at the store were just so eager to get to the front and fight the Germans. And it seems so naive and optimistic from this end, of course, because we know what hell World War One 
was. Right. But they were all so eager to get in the thick of it, and it just... Oh. Well, they didn't have war. They hadn't had a war in their lifetime that they knew that what was going to happen. So this is how Dorothy's first year of marriage went. Work at Vanity Fair during the week. And then, if you're lucky, get on a train and head to New Jersey, or more rarely, off to Allentown, Pennsylvania, or very occasionally Charlotte, North Carolina, or if she's lucky enough, Eddie's unit is training in Syracuse, and he could head in to see her in New York. They just weren't together a lot. But inevitably, Eddie had to go to war eventually, and in July of 1918, his unit was sent to France, and the marriage became all about letters. And she wrote to him nearly every day. She tried to keep it cheery and light, because honestly, that's she knew that's what he needed. Probably the only time she wrote cheery and light anything, I will tell you. And he was so kind that he'd respond with a postcard with two lines scrawled on it. And that's it. That's just men, though. I know. I wouldn't read anything into that. You wouldn't? In his defense, he was in an ambulance company. And his unit saw a lot of action. The armistice was signed on 11-11-18, but Eddie's unit was supposed to stay in Germany as part of the occupying force. So he'd made it through... But they'd have to be apart for a while longer. Okay, so there we stand. Young married Dorothy Parker is away from her husband, as she has been nearly all their married life. She's working at Vanity Fair, uh, enjoying an independent lifestyle. Not very common. So let's leave her there. And when we come back, the career begins in earnest. <laughs> back. Mr. Parker is still away at war, and Mrs. Parker is living the life in New York City. And she's working in Vanity Fair, and the established theater critic decided to take a leave of absence to write his own play. So they offer the position to Dorothy. And Doesn't that seem odd? What? As she has no experience yeah. being a theater critic except going to plays, but... And I might get the ire of restaurant critics all across America, but how many restaurant critics have actually run a restaurant? I'd be very interested to know. Oh. Because it's the same basic thing. You could be a theater critic, mm-hmm. never having acted on stage, which seems sure. strange to me. Well, you could and be you a could book be a- critic without ever having written a book. And I don't think that's appropriate. Oh. I think if you haven't been in the trenches, what? where do you get off? They can compare and contrast. They could say what's entertaining. So, here's Dorothy writing the theater reviews, um, though a lot of times she wrote her reviews under the name Hélène Rousseau to kind of separate the theater critic from the poetry writer. Right. But she was New York City's only female drama critic. That's it. She was it. And along comes Robert Benchley, former editor of the Harvard Lampoon and the king of chivalry, at least when it came to Dorothy Parker, and now the new managing director of Vanity Fair. He kind of fell into it. It's who you know, and he knew. And so he's there. And then Robert Sherwood, the new drama editor with no experience either. <laughs> it was like putting all the class clowns at the same lunch table. And they were in the same office. And Dorothy had it first. And then Benchley came in, and then Sherwood came in. I can see Mr. Crown and Shield was completely bewildered by them, because they would do things like, and I can imagine how this would just irritate you, please don't be late, and if you're late, you have to write an excuse for yourself as to why you were late. So, Benchley came in late. 
just a touch late. Like ten minutes. And he spent twelve more minutes writing a minuscule cockamamie story about elephants and this and that. And it filled a whole page front and back and took twelve more minutes. So he ended up being, you know, twenty-five minutes late and sure turned that in. Like, this is how dumb this rule is. And that was the last one that they wrote. Don't talk about your salary in front of everyone. So Dorothy and her wise men put their salaries on little signs around their neck and marched around. Well, they weren't telling. That's true. It was on a sign. It's on a technicality. And then they got obsessed with undertakers and embalming. And Mr. Crownshield liked to have fainted. I think he had to put his hand over his heart because he came to Dorothy's desk and there said diagram on where to inject the fluid and take it down. <laughs> and she would just smile at him. Oh, is this bothering you? Yeah. No problem. You know. Then she would like pour over this Undertaker's magazine laughing hysterically. And they would have little contests about like, what should my epitaph be on my tombstone? And she suggested, excuse my dust. So, <sighs> poor old Mr. Crownshield. But she was very popular. I mean, she dove in claws first on her on her reviews. So she's she's building her audience, she's building her voice, and she's filling the office with her perfume. She apparently loved the scent of, okay, I had to look up how to pronounce it, Sheeper, C-H-Y-P-R-E, Sheeper, Sheeper, <laughs> okay, it sounds like one of those things you do at the end. <laughs> she also liked tuberose, which is a lot easier to pronounce. <laughs> So moving on, speaking of clowns, can I please tell you how at least they said that their friendship started in the first place? Hmm. Mr. Sherwood was a really, really tall man. I'm talking six foot seven tall. And to go to or from the office, he had to pass this venue called the Hippodrome, where, I'm going to quote here because this was the term of the day. I know it's not an appropriate term anymore, but quote, a troop of midgets would lay in wait for Mr. Sherwood and mess with him, like hanging on his legs and surrounding him and asking him for a weather report and just, like, just being embarrassing. Now, as far as I can tell, this may or may not have actually happened one time, and he used it as kind of an icebreaker, like, look, you guys, I need your help, so I'm not attacked by midgets. Come with me to lunch. A more irresistible invitation. <laughs> I cannot imagine. Protect me from the midgets. From it's Dorothy Parker, who's, you know, barely above midget size herself. <laughs> and I know midget's not the right word. We're just using that. That's what they said. Word. Yes, yes. And so uh, Dorothy and Mr. Benchley went to keep him safe, although I don't think they encountered anybody on this no. occasion. They were probably laughing all the way down the street. They ran into the Algonquin Hotel, just far enough away, and past the Hippodrome. And so they emerge in here laughing. It's just hilarious. Well, there's another group of people that frequented the Algonquin. This group of editors writers and literati decided one time that their compatriot Alexander Wolcott was so full of himself and they wanted to take him down that they were going to host a roast for him at the Algonquin and they lured him there saying oh the Algonquin has a new pastry chef this is a fat guy okay let's go there and so they all go there and they all show up and the anticipation is great and they start roasting him and he much to everyone's dismay loves the heck out of the situation to the point where they start meeting there every week, several times a week, just to start laughing and talking about, kind of talking bad about people, frankly. And that's fine. Yeah. Well, so parallel to this, non-related to this, in comes the trio from Vanity Fair. And a lot of the guys had served together in the war. And it was kind of a natural, like, you know how you see your friend that you knew from high school across the, oh, let me introduce you to so-and-so. Right, right. And it was more like an intermingling. 
And after a while, the trio got invited to the, the big table of literary giants, mm-hmm. as they were then. And uh, they were kind of in with another sort of in crowd. Although they couldn't afford anything. Like in the first <laughs> year, they ordered scrambled eggs. Yeah, the cheapest thing on the menu. Yeah. So they and really need to drink. Could, well, and the Algonquin was dry because it was during Prohibition. They had yeah. no liquor license. Yeah. And so this was all like sober yeah. hilarity. And so the Algonquin, that famous haunt of writers, artists, and actors became the haunt of Dorothy Parker and friends. They did their best work, they said, like other artists do. Sometimes they do their best work or thought their best thoughts when they weren't actually at their desks. <laughs> I don't even know. Well, I don't, even at their desks, Crown and Shield said that, um, I believe that in this period of their lives, the three of them find more enjoyment, make more friends, and work as hard or as easily as they did during this period of time. So, it was, they were like high on everything. They were, peaking here. There was a man named Franklin Pierce Adams who wrote a column for the New York Tribune called The Conning Tower. How do I say how important this man was to writers? Let's just say it was the life ambition of many writers just to get a mention in his column. And simply being fellow denizens of having been in it was enough of a recommendation for people to become friends or hire each other. I mean, there was networking. Did you make yeah. this column? Therefore, I don't have to know you. I know yeah. all about enough I need to know it's about you. It's just like having a Miss Dana's degree. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so when Mr. Adams, based on Dorothy's wit during these Algonquin meetups, used to quote her or publish her poems or even just refer to her presence at the table, she had basically made everyone who she was. And she got this reputation as a smart cracker. Every witty thing anyone ever said was attributed to her in papers all over the country. So beware. Yes, to this day. I, I, <laughs> there's a lot of things that she did say, but there's a lot of things we think she said that she didn't say. I was crushed because there were some things I was like, oh, I wonder if she really said it once I realized that she might not have said everything. I think the one that crushed me when I realized, oh, I should probably look up all these quotes because I had actually used this one before is, I hate writing. I love having written, which she is attributed to for years, but um, might not have said. It was said long before she even was published. It was published in something else. In 1914, but it wasn't her line. Right. Well, one thing we do know, she said, they always played these word games at the table. And so they'd throw out some word, and you're supposed to use it in a sentence. And she was very good at this game. So somebody thought, oh, ho, I'm going to get her. And he said, use the word horticulture in a sentence. And without a pause, she said, you can lead a horticulture, but you can't make her think. Hilarious. Oh, hilarious. She was like, she was a meme of her day. She Remember how in the 80s we would quote the Saturday Night Live skits? She was that. She was, you know, all the memes that we see today. She was that person in this era. So she was definitely the mascot of this whole group of literati. She's educated, refined, she's sarcastic, and she's working and went around with men who were her husband. You know, smoking was amazing enough on its own. (laughs) The group grew and grew and added illustrious members from all sorts of artistic endeavors. Kaufman and Hart, which... Of course, modern-day people might not know, except for in the musical Annie, they're, they're in that song, Go Ask the Gershwins or Kaufman and Hart, the place they love the best. That's Kaufman and Hart. They're at the Algonquin. <laughs> um, Harpo Marx, Douglas Fairbanks, um, you know, to the point where the manager of the Algonquin started 
keeping a table reserved for them. It started out as a rectangular table, but ultimately ended up being a round table in the front room. And like I said, this wasn't a drinking society. This was prohibition. This is a brain society. And the manager also was using them as a draw to the to the hotel. This oh, was yeah. like yeah, this was like the thing, you know, you want to come see them. They're in the center of the dining room at this point, a huge circle. Don't you want to be seen eating near them, listening to them banter? And a lot of times you think about, you know, the Algonquin round table, all these men and Dorothy Parker. But that wasn't the case. There were several women that would come in um that I you know, you just they were just as witty and just as artistically inclined. So she wasn't there as the token female. Right. Anytime anybody at the table said something pretentious, the rest of the people would get up and bow artificially to them. Although, <laughs> in the case of Wolcott, they gave up because they would be standing the whole time and couldn't eat their lunch. Yes. So they gave up. He, had, he was an exception. He could be pretentious all day because people got to eat their lunch. They were expected to take it and dish it out, too. Uh-huh. So they became known as the Vicious Circle. I love that. Yes. It's so descriptive of what they were. I can't, you know, you, you think you're smart and witty and you have lines, and then you meet people that really do, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't keep up. <laughs> On a more personal note, Eddie had come back from more a changed man, um, back to a changed woman. Well, I mean, imagine, like, when he left, she was writing the lingerie captions for... Vogue. And then when he comes back, she's the center of this literary circle, super famous all over the world. Anyone that read that paper knew who Dorothy Parker was or pretended to. Eddie that came back wasn't the one that she sent off to war either. He was pretty beaten up by the war. He was a heavy drinker before the war. And when alcohol was hard to find up at the front because he was in the ambulance corps, he could always get his hands on morphine. So he came back not only an alcoholic and drinking, but he came back addicted to drugs as well. And he had horrible PTSD, although if they referred to it at all, they might refer to war nerves. Mm -hmm. But honestly, his ambulance is driving along with patients in the back. A bomb hits right in front of the ambulance, which goes head first into this giant hole, and no one finds them for three days. And he was trapped in that ambulance listening to his patients die. Everybody died but him in mm-hmm. the hole. Right. This isn't like just that he was weak. Right. He had seen a lot of action and that level of action. So no wonder he came back a changed man. That's all I, I just want to say. Oh, yeah, yeah no, I'm glad you did. But his, the way he was at this point just was such contrast to how she was because she was very independent. She was very social. She was very, I mean, her life revolved around her friends and her work, and that was it. And she wasn't very domestic. So if he had these visions of coming back to this little wifey, I mean, she couldn't even cook. Well, he had shown up to the round table, and at first everyone was very interested to see who that madcap kook Dorothy Parker had married. Mm-hmm. They were pleasant enough, but the fact was he bored them, uh, disappointed them, I guess. And after a while, Eddie just stopped coming around. Like, why would you go where you weren't necessarily that wanted? It was just awkward. And because their marriage was kind of spiraling at that point, he became, because they and all the table knew him, he became kind of the object of some of Dorothy's stories. So, you know, no longer is he this up-on-a-pedestal husband. He's the guy that she's making digs at. Well, she'd always tell stories like, guess what happened to Eddie today? He fell down a manhole cover. Ha, ha, ha. That crazy Eddie is so, you know, accident-prone. It became mm-hmm. bumbling doofus Eddie stories, which is not very fair to him. Well... He really wanted quiet. He wanted to go back to Hartford. He wanted to get 
back to a job, job, you know, business or insurance or something regular. They separated. They didn't divorce. Not yet. No. But there's no way those two personalities are working. No. On the work front, Dorothy was fired from Vanity Fair. Ostensibly, go, go ahead. She was fired, like, dramatically. He, Crown and Shield brought her to tea at the plaza, and then he told her that the former drama critic was returning and she was out of a job. The end. Well, yeah, ostensibly for that, um, really, what had happened is she had yeah. written kind of one too many bad reviews of powerful people's plays. Mr. Ziegfeld is a big name. His wife, Billy Burke, had been taken apart in a review. Mr. Ziegfeld's like, look here, we're an advertiser. You know, I'm not going to take this from you. Blah, blah, blah. And he caused Dorothy Parker's dismissal. Right. So you know Billy Burke, right? Yeah. That's Glenda the Good Witch. Right. Later. Okay, so anyway, Mr. Ziegfeld had sufficient pull to get her fired. Crown and suggested she write little pieces at home. <laughs> like, get out. Yeah. So, Mr. Benchley and Mr. Sherwood resigned in protest, um, which might actually have come as a relief to Mr. Crown and Chill, because he hated to have to fire people, and he kind of did want them gone. I mean, they took long lunches, they worked on their own stuff during his time, they disrupted the office all the time. I think much to their surprise, he just accepted their resignation. Yeah. I think it was a gesture. All right, well, I'm sorry to see you go, and they're just like, Whoa, oh, oh. oh. Oh, now, Benchley is not exactly like Dorothy in that he has a wife and children in the suburbs. And then he has this city life, you know, where he works. But he's supporting a family, so he's going to need to make a little coin. And they they did set up a little freelance office. Uh, <laughs> park bench. I thought yeah, that was really cute. The park bench. Yeah. Um, but real life intervened, and both of the men ended up getting jobs at Life magazine. And um, Dorothy claimed to be so lonely rattling around that office that she had the word men lettered on the door. So she'd get some company. <laughs> but the fact is, for a couple years, um, no one knew what the heck Dorothy did for money. She was always out and about. Always out and about. The speakeasy circuit, restaurants great and small, the theater, of course. Everybody got comps from Life magazine and all these places, and they always had to have a plus one. It got to be super fashionable for them to go to this house of negotiable affection and hang out downstairs in the parlor and have conversations. So they, she used to go to this place that was called Jack and Charlie's, it was a speakeasy, you know, so there's alcohol now. Oh, yeah. there's alcohol now. Yeah. They paid their chef $20,000 a year. If that explains to you, we're not looking at a dive bar here. Yeah. Jack and Charlie's later became 21, which is super famous. Yeah. Well, maybe Eddie was giving her money or Papa's money. Any publisher or editor would have gladly taken and paid for dozens of stories from the famous Mrs. Parker. But anytime friends would come over, she'd throw this towel over her typewriter at her desk so no one could see what... Or if she was working on anything, which cracked me up, the writer of Gone with the Wind uh-huh. That's exactly what I did the same control. exact thing. Yeah. Is that funny? Like, it is. In Margaret Mitchell's case, people, she talked about being a writer, but she had no concrete evidence of it. Whereas Dorothy Parker was a writer. You know, she had a lot of, she had an audience, you know. She had modern terms. She had a platform. So she should be writing, but she was very secretive about it. No, there's no defined work from right. these years that people can point to. Most of the time, she was not doing anything, anything legitimate, professionally. She was doing a lot of stuff. She fell in love with Charles MacArthur. Another very good-looking man. Mr. Playboy, Mr. Yeah, yeah, man yeah. about town. He did fit in with the Algonquin crowd, unlike her husband. Yeah, he was a journalist with dreams of being a playwright, so he was, he was a little faster with the wit. He was definitely, he was... 
Eddie back when he was a playboy, you know, when she mm-hmm. met him. So I can see what the draw was for her. So the work did start to flow. She began to sell lots of pieces to the Post and other places. And here's where her genius began to be apparent. Here's what so she, she's so good at. Regular life, regular vocabulary. Perhaps not an epic setting or any glamorous people, just like a slice of life in which somehow she manages to make a point about racism or women's limited choices or the horrors of suburbia. She was really ahead of the game and such a clever person. You know, the cool kids knew her. The cool places couldn't wait to see her walk in the door. Her little asides were so looked forward to that people were afraid to leave the room in case, number one, they'd miss it, or number two, it would be about them. (laughs) Um, But all of her friends were really concerned about her. Um, Her eyes always looked full of tears, they said, or she's so fond of suffering, they would say. I wonder if she was a high-functioning depressive. Well, she was impressive, that's for sure. Yes. Well, she falls in love every day, they said, like a 15-year-old girl with the most handsome bum she can find. Well, you know, what model did she have for true love, really? And when the almost inevitable happened and Dorothy became pregnant, it was Charles MacArthur who coughed up the $30 for an abortion. Yeah, he was not interested in having any type of fatherhood relationship with her. He had other women going on, and she it was crushing to her. Not only because she had to have the abortion, but because she realized that she did not have the love of this man that she had fallen in love with. So everyone went to see her afterward, even Charles MacArthur. Awkward. This awkward situation. These people who had words for every occasion had nothing until Dorothy lightened the mood. Yeah, she would say, she said she, that she put all of her eggs in one bastard. And, <laughs> and the lightness came back to the room, but not to Dorothy. No. This whole thing led her to slit her wrists a few days afterward. It's the first of three or four or five or six suicide attempts. No one seems to agree on this. I know. <laughs> her life. I know. Yeah. And Benchley had this word of advice on this occasion. He goes, Dottie, don't be a damn fool. Eventually, everyone becomes what they hate the most. And he was saying, you're being dramatic and you're being crazy and... You're taking things too seriously or not seriously enough. You know, he used to get after her about that. And there was never a romantic attachment here, never. even though people are like, oh, is that Mrs. Benchley? And unfortunately, there already is a Mrs. Benchley. And she's the antithesis of Dorothy Parker. Yeah. She's a suburban mom. No. But they never had any any connection. Now, um, I think that they were the perfect office husband and wife, you know. But I also think he had enough self-preservation to know... <laughs> That's a road he did not want to travel. No. Even if there was some sexual tension between the two of them, mm-hmm. because there had to be an attraction, um, but they never acted on it. Neither one acted on it. So it seems like people know her outside, but not her inside, except for maybe Mr. Benchley. Outside, it was all like, I'm so hilarious. Give me another drink. And inside and through her work, she was just screaming. Here's a poem for you that should tell you what she's thinking. Right after this suicide attempt, she wrote, Razors pain you, rivers are damp, acids stain you, and drugs cause cramp. Guns aren't lawful, nooses give, gas smells awful, you might as well live. And her love poems are no sunnier, believe me. Here's the lightest one. Oh, life is a glorious cycle of song, a medley of extemporanea, and love is a thing that can never go wrong, and I am Marie of Romania. 
<laughs> I finished a, a collection of her poetry and I texted Beckett. I'm like, this is so depressing. I can't believe that I just spiraled down like this. This is horrible. You think of this lighthearted, you know, all of her wit and banter and no. You have to be emotionally prepared to read her poetry. <laughs> This is when she began to drink. To excess, probably. Whiskey sours at breakfast is a pretty clear indicator. Uh, kind of a badge of honor holding your liquor, but maybe a red flag from this end. So work, actual paid work, sort of died off again. Though she was writing epic volumes of, as Susan said, very emo verses about death and false love and bleakness. Which is not helping. No. Most people thought it was clever and amusing. We all liked the Smiths in the 80s, after all. <laughs> um, but her close friends didn't. Oh, bam! Back in the hospital after an overdose of sleeping pills. And she tried to play it off as like, an, oh, just another madcap thing. She leaned out of her oxygen tent and said, can somebody get me a flag for my tent? And eventually lost his temper and said, pull yourself together. You're going to make yourself sick if you keep trying to do this. I'm like, okay, sick is the best outcome. <laughs> You're going to make yourself dead if you keep doing this. I know. Right. Kind of silly. But everyone thought she was just being dramatic. And I really think there were some deep-seated problems at work here that everyone just thought was... Her marriage was a failure. She was... She, her work was failing. I mean, she was... It was all drying up. She's a failure as a writer. She had nothing to show for her life except... Um, a long stream of empty cocktail glasses. Um, she was able to start writing for the New Yorker magazine. It was a brand new baby magazine, the product of two of her roundtable friends. Um, she wrote book and theater reviews for them. She wrote some longer articles. She kind of established that casual, upscale, sophisticated voice. Uh, of the magazine that it still has today. So, you know, she might not have contributed as much as you know, she did for other things, but she was with, she wrote pieces for the New Yorker her almost her entire career. Two of her New Yorker pieces that I like so much, she was famous for the really, really short biting book review are, this is not something to be taken lightly. It should be thrown away with great force. And she had particular hatred for Winnie the Pooh. So her review was like, I froze up. <laughs> and Susan asked, what would have happened if she'd had a child? I just don't even know. I can't know. I, yeah. Poor thing. So let's leave Dorothy Parker here. Oh, kind of rickety. Kind of hanging on by her fingernails here at the New Yorker. And <laughs> in New York at all. Um, this is like a down, this is like a really not good place to leave her. But yeah. let's, let's put a blanket on her and tuck her in. And when we come back, we will ideally go up a little on the roller coaster. Stay tuned for part two 